Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 30, Numbers chapters 27 and 28. You know, the last time we met, we looked at the second census of Numbers, the book of Numbers. There was a census taken not long after Israel left Egypt, but, but that's now nearly... 40 years later that this census in uh, Numbers chapter 26 was taken as they were getting ready to begin the conquest of Canaan. Now in both cases, the Levites were considered as a separate category. I cannot emphasize how much that is important in understanding the Bible that the Levites, the priestly class, were a separate category. And so they were given a separate census from all the other tribes of Israel. And the terms and conditions of the census, who was counted, who wasn't, for the Israelites versus the census for the Levites, were also different in one significant way. The age of the males the age of the males who were included in the census. And the regular Israelite males, the the 12 tribes, those who were included in the count would be of an appropriate age to fight in the military. And so older men were also included, provided they weren't so old as to be physically unable to contribute in some way to the war effort. So in general, the age range was from 20 to maybe 50, 55, somewhere up in there. But for the Levites, the age range counted in the census, their census, was from one month of age all the way up. There was no upper limit. And the age of one month, as the young side of the range was chosen primarily due to the Hebrew law that a male child was not counted as a person until he had lived for one full cycle of the moon after his birth. This does not mean that newborns were considered subhuman or unimportant. Okay, It's just that until a male had been circumcised, usually on the eighth day, after his birth, and had managed to survive for 30 days, right? they were not considered part of Israel. This had to do with the rather significant mortality, infant mortality rate of that era as much as anything. Now, the reason for that first census, some 40 years earlier, was only to establish an army of Israelites and then, of course, to establish a, a priesthood of Levites. This new census was especially for determining the size of the territory each tribe would soon be allotted. Overlooked, though, is yet another need for this census. Much had changed in the 40 years since Israel had left Egypt. There had been a near 100% population turnover. The Lord had decreed that those who were of an age of accountability when they left the grip of the Pharaoh would never be allowed to enter the promised land. And the reason for that severe restriction was Israel's rebellion at Kadesh when the twelve scouts went out and reconnoitered Canaan and came back with a report that it would be very costly 
in terms of human life in order for Israel to conquer Canaan. The result was the leaders and the general population of Israel became afraid and they refused to enter the land of Canaan. Two scouts spoke in opposition to the reluctant ten. Those two scouts, Joshua and Caleb, were made an exception to the rule by being allowed to enter into the promised land. So a detailed accounting of the census was recorded wherein we find the overall structure of Israel changed somewhat. Some tribes grew in population, others decreased. One tribe, uh, Simeon, was at this time less than half the size it was when they left Egypt. And this was at least partly due to the fulfillment of the curse that Simeon's father, Jacob, had laid on his two sons, Simeon and Levi, while he was in his in the midst of his deathbed pronouncements. Now, individual clans and their leaders were called out in the record we read last week. So as to record who belonged to which clan, and then which clan to which tribe. And this family connection was everything when it came to apportioning the land. While Moses appointed land to each tribal leader, the leader would then apportion his major piece among the clans of his tribe. The larger and the more prominent clans received more and better land holdings than the smaller and weaker ones. So we could say that most of what we studied last week revolved around the land inheritance Israel was about to receive. Now what we're going to read tonight in Numbers chapter 27 are some laws that better define the laws of succession of that land inheritance. That is, how the land will be passed along when a clan or a family leader dies. So open up your Bibles to Numbers chapter 27. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, that is page 183. Then the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilad, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, approached. These were the names of his daughters, Machla, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. And they stood in front of Moses, Eleazar the Cohen, the leaders in the whole community at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. And they said, Our father died out in the desert. He wasn't part of the group who assembled themselves to rebel against Adonai and Korah's group, but he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Now, why should the name of our father be eliminated from his family just because he didn't have a son? Give us property to pass along with the brothers of our father. Moshe brought their cause before Adonai. And Adonai said, answered Moses, the, daughter, the daughters of Zolochad are right in what they say. You must give them property to be inherited along with that of their father's brothers. Have what their father would have inherited passed to them. Moreover, say to the people of Israel, if a man dies and does not have a son, you are to have his inheritance passed to his daughter. If he doesn't have a daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father doesn't have brothers, give his inheritance to the closest relative in his family, and he will possess it. 
This will be the standard for judgment to be used by the people of Israel as Adonai ordered Moses. Now Adonai said to Moses, climb this mountain in the Abarim range and look out at the land which I have given the people of Israel. After you've seen it, you too will be gathered to your people, just as Aaron your brother was gathered. Because in the seen desert, when the community was disputing with me, you rebelled against my order to uphold my holiness by means of the water, with them looking on. Moses said to Adonai, Let Adonai, God of the spirits of all human beings, appoint a man to be over the community to go out and come in ahead of them, to lead them out and bring them in so that Adonai's community will not be like sheep without a shepherd. And Adonai said to Moses, Take Yahashua, the son of Nun, a spiritual man, and lay your hand on him. Put him in front of Eleazar, the priest, and the whole community, and commission him in their sight. Delegate to him some of your authority, so that the entire community of Israel will obey him. He is to present himself to Eleazar, the Cohen, who is to find out by means of the Urim, what Adonai's will is for Yahushua's decisions. Then at his word they will go out, and at his word they will come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole community. Moses did, as Adonai had ordered him. He took Yahushua, put him before Eleazar, the priest, and the whole community, laid his hands on him, and commissioned him, as Adonai had said through Moses. Well, when we back away... And take a high altitude view of the law. We find that after a series of general laws in Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, and then later on Deuteronomy, tend to deal with some specific cases that don't fit too well within the general rules and regulations that have been given. So while one could, in the most negative sense, say that the, a law has been changed between Leviticus and Numbers. In fact, a law is merely being either more specifically defined or how the law is to be carried out is being explained in, in greater depth. And in some cases, because the generation who was given the law at Mount Sinai is now dead and gone, the more important laws and principles are being repeated and reinforced for this new generation of Hebrews whose parents had first received the law, but now they were buried out in the desert sands. And the first thing we encounter is a case whereby a family headed by a man named Zelophehad, now deceased, has a problem. And that problem is that Zelophehad left no sons to inherit. So his daughters come to Moses and they ask why it would be so wrong for them to inherit their father's wealth, even though they weren't males. And their reasoning is stated in verses 3 and 4. In a nutshell, it is that A, their father had not participated in that great apostasy of Korah. Remember when fire came out of the tabernacle and burned up many rebellious men and that earthquake opened up a fissure which swallowed thousands of people, families of the rebels. And B... Their father had died under the same curse that all the other people who left Egypt had. They failed to trust the Lord and go forth into the promised land. He wasn't any different. 
Further, since all the other families whose men had committed those same sins certainly weren't being denied rights to land in Canaan, why should their father's family be denied land merely because he had no no sons to inherit his portion? Moses listens to the plea of these women, says he'll take it to the Lord. And if we look closely, after Mount Sinai, this sort of method of having additional laws added became the norm. And the same concept is used to this day in our American legal system. It's called precedent. A situation would arise without a previous precedent. And it would be brought to Moses, the judge, to decide. He would then take it to the Lord, who would decide the matter. Moses would inform the parties of Jehovah's decisions, and then the matter became law, based on precedent. Generally speaking, all similar matters were to be handled in the same way from here on. Now, therefore, we have generally two classifications and methods of receiving laws from Jehovah by direct oracle, like on Mount Sinai, and by precedent, when a situation demands a remedy, so it's taken to Jehovah and he decides it. Now, as to the concept of a family leader dying, and there only being daughters and no sons to inherit, the Lord says that daughters may inherit what had normally been given only to sons. And the Lord then takes some additional obvious and probably quite usual cases regarding succession of inheritance and makes all that law as well. If a father dies without a son, his wealth goes to his daughters. If he has no children at all, then it goes to his brothers. If he has no brothers at all, it goes to his uncles on his father's side. If the man didn't even have uncles on his father's side, then the nearest family relative, whether on the mother's side or the father's side, inherits the family property. Now, a little later in Numbers, and later still in Deuteronomy, we're going to get some caveats and some exceptions to all this, because the basic principle that this revolves around is that the land was not ever to leave the possession of the Hebrew family who originally possessed it. Very key. Okay. Now, I'm avoiding using the word owned. And instead, I'm using the word possessed. Because God makes it clear that all the land of Canaan, soon to be called Israel, is his. Even the Israelites won't be owning the land, per se. They're just going to possess it. The best mental picture of this kind of arrangement in modern terms would be the difference between buying a house and leasing one. In one case, the title of the land is transferred to you. In the other, you simply possess the property for the purpose of using it by paying something to the owner. Ownership has no expiration date. Leases are time limited. God was not passing the title of the property to Israel. He was but giving the Hebrews exclusive use 
of his property in perpetuity. Therefore, since one cannot sell what one does not own, the Israelites had no right to sell land in Israel, especially to foreigners. And strictly speaking, not even to each other. And the laws of the sabbatical years, and more directly the laws of Jubilee, facilitated this idea of possessing somebody else's land for a time, but never owning it. The promised land didn't have a for sale sign on it. Now this would be a good time to make something quite clear given the events of our time whereby Israel is actively engaged in giving up land in hopes of peace with their enemies. Or from a biblical perspective, actively engaged in rebelling against the Lord by giving up possession of a land that was set aside exclusively for them. Those of us who are supporters of Israel watch hurt and angry and frustrated at this wrong-minded and foolish attempt of the Israeli government to appease their enemies by giving up God's land to his enemies. Their hope, of course, is that by giving up that land, their enemies will give them peace in return. Yet, inexplicably, the more land they give up, the more the enemy attacks them. Only a couple of years ago, Israel gave up that southern seacoast portion called the Gaza Strip, and almost immediately, Israel came under rocket attack from Gaza. Now they're being threatened with attack from enemies of the north, who are demanding that they give up the northern part of Israel. And why not? Work for the Palestinians. I suppose it would be reasonable to draw the conclusion that all Israel has done by once again giving up land for peace is emboldening their enemies to demand even more. And why they can't see that, I'm just not sure. However, that is the earthly reality of it. The spiritual heaven reality is that the Lord is at the least allowing Israel to pay a heavy price for rebelling against him by giving up that which they don't own, the land of Israel. Israelis have no right, from a spiritual perspective, to hand one square inch of Israel over to anybody, especially their enemies. But neither does our nation have the right to demand that the key to peace in the region is to do exactly that which is precisely the centerpiece of the Bush administration's roadmap to peace. Divide Israel, create a Palestinian, a Philistine state on the Lord's land. Of all possibilities, I can't think of a worse plan than that one. Now we've all gasped at one time or another when we read of the end times prophecy that says that a new temple will be built in Jerusalem and then the Antichrist will put an image of himself inside the Holy of Holies and demand that he be worshipped as God. You know, there really is very little difference between inviting God's enemies to live on his sanctified land and permitting God's grand enemy 
to be worshipped in his sanctified temple. It's all cut from the same cloth. So while we can empathize with Israel's current plight, and we can be for our president, and we can be loyal to our great country, as God's elect, we cannot applaud or be party to such a plan. In fact, we need to oppose it energetically and not by offering some geopolitical reason or speaking about fairness or even about international law. Rather, we must stand on the covenants of God that gave the Hebrews that land for all time. What man-made governments think simply doesn't matter. Now, I went on this singing detour because the very reason for the new procedure of establishing law by means of precedent regarding land inheritance in this case is this developing God principle that land given to a certain Israelite family is to remain in that family. That is the reason that wherever possible the land was to be passed on to a son because the son carried the family name forward. Daughters, when they married, became under the authority and identity and name of her new husband's family. What happens if that daughter married a foreigner? While some can look at this seeming sex discrimination made into law, okay, the reality is that daughters were provided for in a different way than sons in that society. Daughters were given valuable dowries when they were married. We have records of wealthy men even giving their daughters entire cities as wedding gifts. Now, of course, this all depended on how well off the father of the bride was, but it was the same for a son. For the average Israelite, a couple of acres of ground and a handful of sheep were given as a wedding gift, or at times, that's all there was to even inherit. Perhaps some metal cooking containers or some tools of the father's trade might be the inheritance. There were only occasionally great transfers of land and wealth. When a daughter was married off, the dowry ended any responsibility the father had for his daughter. She was now the responsibility of her new husband and his family. If a daughter of a man of the tribe of Judah married a man from the tribe of Dan, she stopped being seen as a Judahite and became a Danite. More if a daughter of a man from the tribe of Judah married a man outside of any Israelite tribe, she made herself an outsider. So if a daughter of an Israelite man inherited her father's land, and then by, just as kind of an example, proceeded to marry a man, let's say, from the Gentile nation of Moab, then you would have a non-Israelite taking possession of a piece of the Holy Land. That's a definite no-no. Yet as of this point, as of this point in Scripture, that exact thing was a real possibility. For there was nothing yet to prevent it. That's why we're going to find later on some laws that the daughter only would retain her land inheritance as long as she married within her own tribe. If she married even another Hebrew 
but not of her father's tribe, she was subject to having her inheritance voided under some circumstances. In verse 12, the subject of chapter 27 takes a, takes a sharp turn. And we are given the story of how a new leader to replace Moses was selected. Now this was needed because A, Moses was a very old man. He was, he was well beyond being the leader of an army, which is what was going to be needed. And the Lord also determined that Moses, due to his sin of rebelling against God, would not be allowed to enter the promised land. But Moses would at least be allowed to see it from a distance. So we have Moses ascending this mountain range, and a range of mountains at that time was known as Avarim. And from there, getting this expansive view of the promised land that he would never get to set foot upon. Now, later we're going to find this particular mountain is called Mount Nebo. And the Lord says that shortly after Moses sees the land, he's going to die. Then in verse 15, this mediator of Israel shows his heart for the people by asking the Lord to appoint a new leader so that the community of Israel can be cared for, like he cared for them. And the person Yehovah chooses is Joshua, Yahashua, son of Nun. Now, Joshua is well qualified for this job because he has been Moses' assistant now for quite some time. He is also has great merit in the Lord's eyes because he was one of the two scouts who stood against the rest of Israel when they waffled and refused to enter the promised land. Now, while it sounds as though Moses is going to die immediately, in fact, it's going to be a little while yet before he passes because there's a lot of laws yet to give. The land has to be fairly allotted by Moses to each tribe. Let's notice an interesting difference here. Between the death of Aaron, the high priest, Moses' big brother, and the subsequent automatic appointment of Aaron's son, Eleazar, as the new high priest, versus the coming death of Moses and the subsequent naming of a new leader of Israel by God. First, Aaron didn't ask God, as did Moses, for a replacement high priest. Because the line of succession was set. And it was automatic. Aaron's firstborn son, or another son if that firstborn was unsuitable for whatever reason, was to become the new high priest, and that was to be the pattern from here forward for the high priestly succession. But there was no automatic successor, no inheritor of the position for Moses. Second, In fact, there was no real successor to Moses at all. Moses' most important role as mediator for Israel was not passed on. Joshua was to be a military leader of Israel, not a mediator. When Moses needed answers from the Lord, or the Lord wanted to tell Moses something, God made direct communication with Moses. This would not usually be the case with Joshua. Joshua was not going to be the new mediator of Israel. Now, I've mentioned before that the Lord has in all history supplied but two mediators, and two only. And that is all there's ever going to be 
Moses was the first, Yeshua the second. Neither had a successor. Oh, some of their duties were assigned. Joshua was to rule over care for and lead Israel, and we believers are to spread the good news and demonstrate Christ's sacrificial love here on earth. But we're not replacement mediators for Jesus. We are just his disciples. So with the coming death of Moses, it was going to be around 12 centuries before the Father would provide a new and better mediator than Moses. And now that Yeshua is dead and risen, there's not going to be another one in the future. When he comes again, as a matter of fact, it's not going to be as a mediator. He's going to come as the kinsman redeemer. Now further as we see in verse 18, Joshua is to be commissioned by the high priest. Moses was commissioned by God. Think about that. As a mediator, he was commissioned by God. That would be the protocol for anointing the next mediator. Actually, Moses even commissioned the priesthood. Then in verse 20, we see that while Moses is still alive, Joshua is to receive some of Moses' authority. So we're going to have a dual leadership for a while. Moses and Joshua as a leadership team. Yet it's understood that Moses is senior and therefore has authority over Joshua. So we see Moses lays his hands on Joshua. The Hebrew is samach, which means to lean on. And later the term becomes formalized to samacha, which means the ritual laying on of hands. Biblically, samacha, laying on hands, indicates a transference of some kind. Some, sometimes this transference is authority, like from Moses to Joshua. Other times it can be a transference of guilt or of sin from a man to an animal. That is why virtually every animal sacrifice employed samacha. The whole purpose of animal sacrifice revolved around transference and substitution. So this laying on of hands was ritual symbolism. And it painted quite a picture of what was going to come with the advent of Yeshua. This chapter ends with Moses and Joshua standing before Eleazar, the high priest, and the whole community watching while Joshua is in in essence ordained with authority. It is done before all the people so that they'll all recognize Joshua as God's choice and will submit to his leadership. Let's continue the story in Numbers chapter 28. Adonai said to Moses, Give an order to the people of Israel and tell them you are to take care to offer to me at the proper time the food presented to me as offerings made by fire providing a fragrant aroma for me. Tell them, this is the offering made by fire that you are to bring to Adonai, male lambs in their first year and without defect, two daily as a regular burnt offering. Offer the one lamb in the morning, the other at dusk, along with two quarts of fine flour as a grain offering, mixed with one quart of oil from pressed olives. It is the regular burnt offering, the same as was offered on Mount Sinai, 
to give a fragrant aroma, an offering made by fire for Adonai. Its drink offering is to be one quarter hen for one lamb. In the holy place, you are to pour out a drink offering of intoxicating liquor to Adonai. The other lamb you are to present at dusk. Present it with the same kind of grain offering and drink offering as in the morning. It is an offering made by fire with a fragrant aroma for Adonai. On Shabbat, offer two male lambs in their first year and without defect, with one gallon of fine flour as a grain offering, mixed with olive oil, and its drink offering. This is the burnt offering for every Shabbat, in addition to the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. At each Rosh Hodesh, new moon, you are to present a burnt offering to Adonai consisting of two young bulls, one ram, seven male lambs in their first year and without defect, with six quarts of fine flour mixed with olive oil as a grain offering for the one ram, and two quarts of fine flour mixed with olive oil as a grain offering for each lamb. This will be the burnt offering giving a fragrant aroma and offering made by fire for Adonai. Their drink offerings will be two quarts of wine for a bowl, one and a third quarts for a ram, and one quart for each lamb. This is the burnt offering for every Rosh Hodesh throughout the months of the year. Also, a male goat is to be offered as a sin offering to Adonai in addition to the regular burnt offering and drink offering. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, is Adonai's Pesach. On the 15th day of the month is to be a feast. Matzah is to be eaten for seven days. The first day is to be a holy convocation. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. But present an offering made by fire, a bird offering to Adonai, consisting of two young bulls, one ram, seven male lambs in their first year. They're to be without defect for you. With their grain offering, fine flour mixed with olive oil. Offer six quarts for a bull, four for a ram, two for each of the seven lambs. Also a male goat as a sin offering to make atonement for you. You're to offer these in addition to the morning burnt offering, which is the regular burnt offering. In this fashion, you are to offer daily for seven days the food of the offering made by fire, making a fragrant aroma for Adonai. It is to be offered in addition to the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. On the seventh day, you're to have a holy convocation. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. On the day of the first fruits, when you bring a new grain offering to Adonai in your feast of Shavuot, you are to have a holy convocation. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. But present a burnt offering as a fragrant aroma for Adonai, consisting of two young bulls, one ram, seven male lambs in their first year, and their grain offering. Fine flour mixed with olive oil, six quarts for each bull, four for the one ram, two for each of the seven lambs, plus a male goat to make atonement for you. You are to offer these in addition to the regular burnt offering and its grain offering, there to be without defect for you with their drink offerings. Okay. Chapters 28 and 29 are effectively the Hebrew calendar of public sacrifices. That is, as we've discussed before, there are a number of kinds of calendar years in every society. In the U.S., we have a secular calendar year, the school calendar year, a fiscal calendar year, and we have even some others. In Israel, we have the secular calendar year, the ritual calendar year, and the tithing calendar year, along with a couple of others. 
What this chapter embellishes more than it establishes is the religious ritual calendar year. I say embellishes because between Exodus and Leviticus, most of what we just read here had already been laid down as law. However, this section in chapters 28 and 29 tailors these rituals to this imminent time when Israel would be celebrating these sacrifices and feasts in their own land. And therefore they would finally have all the foods and animals and wine and such available to properly perform these rituals on, a, in some cases, a daily basis. Sacrifice in God's economy is at the heart of worship. Let me say that again. Sacrifice is at the heart of all biblically-based worship. The Torah sacrifices are pictures and patterns that were to be taken literally and performed precisely. Yet they're also prophetic of a time when Messiah would come to fulfill the purpose of those sacrifices. Now, modern Christians generally have no understanding of biblical sacrifice. Part of that is because the Bible doesn't really bother to explain the significance and purpose of each of the many kinds and categories of sacrifices that are so carefully laid out in the Law of Moses. Yet to the people of Moses' era, and for thousands of years after him, the significance was self-evident. Those worshippers who brought the sacrifices, those priests who officiated over the sacrifices, they comprehended well both the broad picture of appeasing a God who was offended by the sin of his people, and they understood the, the detailed nuances of the many kinds of rituals and sacrifices that the Lord says are indispensable in his economy. The doing of those sacrificial rituals automatically brought with it the understanding of why those rituals were needed. The followers of the Torah understood how painful and bloody and expensive atonement is. They understood that there were different levels of offending Jehovah. They understood that there were some sins that could not be atoned for with a substitute. They understood that sin and holiness were organically connected and multifaceted. They understood that you could not separate your life from your faith. You can't behave one way for six days of the week and another on the Sabbath. The idea that you would have one set of morals and ethics in business, another set in your home, and yet another set at synagogue, this concept was unknown to them. 
Now before we study chapter 28, verse by verse, I want to sum up the sacrificial rituals and celebrations that the law prescribed. It's been a while since we've looked at them, so this is a pretty good chance for you to kind of recall them again. There are four main categories of sacrifices ordained in the Torah. First, the burnt offering, the olah, the purification offering, the hatat, the reparation or guilt offering, the asham, and then the peace offering, the shlamim. Okay? It is the precise protocol of the ritual and the kinds of animals that are prescribed that defines and differentiates these offerings from one another. But there was one common cord that connected each of these. A worshiper would present the specified animal, lay hands on the animal, and then kill and butcher it according to a set procedure. After that, the priest would sprinkle some of the blood on that of that animal onto the great bronze altar. And then some or all of that animal would be burnt up on that altar. All sacrifices were burnt up. So all sacrifices could be said in one form or another to be burnt offerings. The disposition of the flesh of the animal played a significant role in the characteristics of each kind of sacrifice. The Olah required that the entire animal was burned up on the altar fire. Therefore, no one was permitted to eat any part of the meat that came from that kind of a sacrifice. The Hata'at and the Asham sacrifices allowed some of the animal to be used for food by the temple priests. The Shlamim permitted uh, spe- specified parts of the animal to of course be burned up on the altar, but then other parts were given as food to the priests, and then usually the largest portion of it actually went to the worshiper who brought, who brought the animal. The Olah was performed daily, routinely. It was performed probably the most of them all, most of all the sacrifices. It was the king of all sacrifices, and generally considered the most important. The hata'at occurred often. It was usually associated with the ending of a long-term time of being unclean, for some reason or another. The asham was not nearly so often as the, as the previous two, and was set apart as special, because it was part of the atonement process of one who committed a particularly Serious sin. The Shlamim occurred frequently. It was often used at the completion of a vow. Sometimes this sacrifice, you'll see it labeled in your Bibles as a free will sacrifice. Because one who simply wanted to honor the Lord for almost any reason would bring a Shlamim sacrifice at his or her own volition. That the worshiper got to keep a goodly portion of the meat had a lot to do with its very high rate of use. By law, animals used for food were to be slaughtered at the temple 
But by practicality, only the wealthy enjoyed meat on a regular basis. So a common citizen who wanted meat usually waited for an occasion where a peace offering, a shlamim sacrifice, was called for so he could satisfy both the law and his desire for meat. The wealthy tended to make, oh, they made a lot of shlamim sacrifices because they wanted meat on the table practically every day. So the wealthy tended to look very pious. Think about what you read in the Bible. The wealthy tended to look very pious and thus considered themselves more righteous than the poor by offering all these peace offerings all the time, even though their motive was really for a nice, juicy lamb chop. And every one of these sacrifices, the sacrificed animal becomes the substitute for the owner of the animal. That is, the animal dies in place of the one who brought it. The animal dies as a ransom payment for the sins of the worshiper. In the Olam offering, the animal is burnt up completely and destroyed. It presents a picture in which each and every person on earth owes the Lord for our sin. We owe him our physical and our eternal death because of our sin. The Hata'at requires that the blood of the animal be smeared around the altar. The purpose of that smeared blood is it's a purifying agent. The altar and all the ritual places and items, see, they become defiled because of the proximity of the sin of men. The only thing that can purify is blood. Without the constant purifying of that temple area, there would be no way that a holy God could be there. Now, the Asham offering is interesting in that it represents the payment of a debt. The blood of the animal representing the life of the animal, right, is owed to God due to the sins of the worshiper. This is reparation paid to the Lord for our offenses against him. The shlamim, the peace offering, was a thank you gift to God. It was normally presented when the giver was experiencing well-being and he wanted to acknowledge that it was Yehovah who was the source of his well-being. Or as the name of the offering implies, that the worshiper was experiencing shalom. And so, as you can see, atonement and sin are large and complex matters. It may seem simple and straightforward to a Gentile, in particular, who has no knowledge whatsoever of the sacrificial system. But the death of our Savior as a sacrifice of atonement, was not simple. Our Father did not reduce the complexity of sin and atonement when His Son died and then arose from the dead.
It has been men's doctrines that seem to do everything possible to prevent us from even reading about God's laws and commands and ordinances. Men's doctrines that replace scripture with overly simplistic statements such as a sin is a sin is a sin. It doesn't matter what it is. Or that our sacrifice, our sacrifice, is simply answering an altar call at a revival or at a church service. Going forward and saying yes to the call of Yeshua. Or worse, that our deeds and our works have nothing to do with anything. Most certainly our deeds and our works can never gain us salvation. But our deeds and works are with equal certainty a measure of our commitment to our Savior and the eternal principles of our God. We'll pick up some more in chapter 28 next week.